Good morning. The scripture reading for the day comes from Hebrews 11, verses 30 to 40, and can be found on page 6 in your bulletins. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to fight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they may, might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Good morning to you, Grace Meridian Hill. Good morning. Good to be with you again to open God's Word and share with you a message from this letter to the Hebrews for our guests and visitors or even those who don't know me. Um, my name is Erwin Hintz and I serve as one of the pastors uh, in the Grace and DC Network. It's been my pleasure this month of July to be preaching a short uh, five-week sermon series uh, through the letter to the Hebrews with you, and um, uh, you may have noticed, uh, if you haven't been tracking with us, it's a little bit strange verse to start in, verse 30 of this, of this chapter, we're picking up right in, uh, in the middle, we've skipped a few verses, and that's really uh, because... I wanted to get, I only have one more week left. I don't want to get to beginning chapter 12 next week. And so, unless uh, I was going to squeeze a couple of sermons <laughs> into one from those passages, I figured, well, we'll just, Lord understands, we'll just skip a few verses here uh, in, the, uh, in the chapter. I want to speak to you this morning. Our, our sermon series has been subtitled, In Need of Endurance in need of endurance, really lifted from this idea that runs through the letter to the Hebrews about uh, the need to endure, which the pastor, who I call the writer of this letter, says specifically in uh, the end of, toward the end of chapter uh, 10, when he says to them, you have need of endurance. We find ourselves in that space, and so we've been spending the past couple of weeks in chapter 11 uh, on this subtitled sermon, uh, Endure by Faith. This week we're going to be talking about Endure by Faith, 
facing the impossible. Faith facing the impossible. And here is the point, if you will, uh, the, the, the point of the message. It is that through faith in Jesus Christ, we are enabled to endure success and suffering. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are enabled by God to endure both success and suffering. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you again and again and again for this word that is not dead, but that is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword that pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judges, discerns the intentions and the, and the thoughts of the heart. And our confession, oh God, this morning is that we are all sitting here naked and exposed to you, the one to whom we must give account. And Lord, that is good news because you know precisely what each heart in here stands in need of. And so would you, through the preaching of your word, do what only you can do. Meet us where we are and give us what we need. Lord, if it's faith, would you give us faith if we need to be encouraged? Oh God, encourage us, be merciful to us, and correct us if we need correction that we would be people who live not for our own glory, but for the glory of Jesus Christ, our God and our King. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen, amen, and amen. Uh, well, recently, I think this happened just over the past few weeks at the University of Manchester in England. Uh, some students uh, from the Student Center painted over uh, the lyrics of a poem or the stanzas of a poem by Richard Kipling that were, uh, that were uh, posted in the university's newly refurbished student center. Uh, they replaced that, um, that poem with uh, the words from, uh, from Maya Angelou's poem, uh, Still I Rise. And an article about the incident notes that in a statement on Facebook, Sarah Khan, the union's liberation and access officer, said students had not been consulted about the art that would decorate the union building. Said we, she said, we as an exec team believe that Kipling stands for the opposite of liberation, empowerment, and human rights. The things that we as a student union stand for, she said. Kipling is an author, is the author, a well-known author of poems like uh, The White Man's Burden, which was written to encourage the United States to assume colonial control of the Philippines in the late 1800s. But that, however, was not the poem that was put up in the New Student Center. The poem that they painted over was another one of Kipling's poems that he was famous for, the poem If. Uh, if, in fact, was actually one of my father's favorite poems. Uh, I never actually had the opportunity to ask Dad before he passed why this poem was such a favorite of his, but he had learned it in school growing up in Trinidad, which was a British colony, so it makes sense that he would have learned that poem in school. That poem, If, is about uh, uh, written from the perspective of a father to a son. The father is giving the son wise words of advice about growing into manhood. Indeed, the last two lines of the poem are, if you can fill 
the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And, which is more, you'll be a man, my son. Those two lines are worth talking about by themselves, filling the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run. But our text uh, this morning from this letter to the Hebrews brings to my mind a different stanza from that same poem. In the second stanza, Kipling says, if you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same, if you can bear to hear the truths you've spoken, twisted by names to make a trap for fools to watch the things you gave your life to broken and stoop and build them up with worn out tools. The father is saying to the son, you've got to get up and do something. It's cool to dream, but dreams can't be your master. It's cool to think, but thoughts cannot be your aim. In other words, to quote from another more recently famous uh, poet, Shel Baraka, who says, uh, you can be a dreamer, but don't live in your bed. And the second line is the reality check. And when you get up and do something, you will meet with both triumph and disaster. And his advice is that you have to treat those two imposters just the same. Don't get too high on the triumph or too low when disaster hits. He's saying, son, if you're going to become a man, you've got to have the right perspective on both success and suffering. Pastor to the Hebrews instructs us on how to have the right perspective on both success and suffering. The perspective is this, that the life of faith in Christ involves both. The life of faith in Christ involves both success and suffering. My father might, uh, might not like me modifying uh, Kipling's poem, but I would put his line this way. If you can meet with both triumph and disaster and understand that God is still the same, then you are enduring by faith. And so in... Facing the impossible, I'm going to talk about three things from this passage. Impossible success, impossible suffering, and impossibly bad. Impossible success, impossible suffering, and impossibly better. And in this history lesson of faith that the pastor has been taking them on, he has moved from the early chapters of the, the book of Genesis through the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and Joseph. As I mentioned, we didn't look at verses 17 through 29, but, but he also moves on to, to Moses and the Exodus and the display of God's power to deliver his people as they pass through the Red Sea, as he dried up the land for them, uh, for Israel to cross. But there is a big gap in the history lesson for them between verses 29 and verses 30 of this chapter. Verse 29 is about crossing the Red Sea. He says, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. And then he skips Exodus, Leviticus, 
Numbers and Deuteronomy and jump all the way to the book of Joshua and the conquest and the land by Joshua. He said in verse 30, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. He is about to start his examples of impossible success, but he skips the whole wilderness generation. The whole group of folks that, that came out of the exodus to, to those who came into the promised land in the brook of Joshua. Why does he do that? Because he's already used them. If you had been reading through this letter, you would have recognized that he's already used them as a next example in verses in chapters 3 and 4. He's already told them that those wilderness folk, those are the jokers you don't want to emulate. Who refused to live by faith and so they all died without entering into God's rest. And so he skips 40 years and beginning with the conquest of Joshua, uh, he says in verses 30 to 32 by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. days by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time, he says, would fail me. He's preaching now, right? For time would fail me to tell about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and all the prophets. Everyone mentioned in those verses faced impossible odds. Jericho was a city that was fortified by walls. There was no way that Israel was going to conquer Jericho unless the walls were breached. It was impossible for them to do it. Rahab was a Gentile, a non-Israelite, and, and a prostitute who lived in Jericho. She was a Canaanite, if you will. How was she going to escape being killed when the city goes up in flames? If she welcomes the Israelite spies, she puts her own life in danger. A Gideon goes out to battle the Midianites in the book of Judges. He starts with an army of 32,000 men, and God has him reduced the army to 300 men. You saw the movie 300, all those dudes died, but Gideon's 300, they conquered. <laughs> Success 
is possible by faith because as Jesus says in Mark 10 and 27, with man it is impossible but not with God for all things are possible with God. And when we talk about God's ability to do the impossible, we shouldn't get confused. God can give you stuff. God can give you health. He can give you material things. He does do that. But in the context of the pastor's example, the impossible successes that God's people received by faith were not really our ideas of success. It had nothing to do with making the cover of Fortune 500 magazine. Notice, however, what they were doing. The point of the commendation, the point of the commendation was their trust in the Lord's willingness and faithfulness and ability to fulfill His promises. These promises were centered around God's commitment to save His people. It was a trust that God would deliver His people out of impossible situations. So the impossible success is with respect to the things of God. These successes, they had a material and they, they had a physical outcome. There was indeed benefit and blessing in the here and now, but they were not just physical victories. These victories were spiritual victories. God's purposes were being fulfilled. He advanced his kingdom through these victories. They took place in the here and now, but they were successes that made heaven rejoice. See, that's the question when we ask ourselves, when we face the impossible, right? When we have to live as followers of Jesus Christ in the midst of impossible situations, are the victories we're seeking victories that will make heaven rejoice or simply make us happy? As the Apostle Paul says to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 3, right? Since you've been raised with Christ, set your mind on things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Why? Because you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. The victories that I am seeking God for are victories that are rooted and grounded in the purposes of God that would make heaven rejoice if God succeeds. You can't go too deeply into that one because there's a second reason why these successes were impossible. It's not just because these people place uh, uh, faced face rather impossible odds. Did you notice any character issues in the people that the pastor uses here as an example? Everybody mentioned faced impossible odds. Everybody mentioned here also had questionable character issues. Israel conquered Jericho, but they were a stiff-necked people. Rahab was a prostitute. Gideon was a scaredy cat. He didn't want the call to save Israel. Jephthah was a son of a prostitute. Not only that, he made a horrible vow and sacrificed his own daughter. Samson was ruled by his lust for women. No one's character was without bent blemish, not even David and Samuel. Couldn't the pastor have chosen some better examples for the Hebrews? 
Now you can't think that God is somehow cool with their poor choices. And if we think that we missed the point, he's already in this uh, book devoted a lot of ink to, to talking about sin in the letter. But here's the point. I, I can't put it any better than John Calvin put it when he wrote in his commentary about this passage. There was none of them whose faith did not falter. Thus, Calvin wrote, in all the saints, something reprehensible is ever to be found. Yet faith, though halting and imperfect, is still approved by God. There is, therefore, no reason why the faults we labor under should break us down or dishearten us, provided we, by faith, go on in the race of our calling. You see, if we were honest with ourselves, we would marvel at the fact that we experience any success at all. The character flaws of the people mentioned in those verses were not unique to them. We might look, look at them and shake our heads, but Calvin was right in every saint, that, that is, in every Christian, in every person who follows Jesus Christ, there's always to be found something reprehensible. The success seems impossible not just because of their situation, but because of their character. When you look at the character flaws, you say, these people don't deserve to be successful. They're unlikely candidates. All right? How do you, like, how do you get to even be called a saint? Right? To, be a, to be a saint is not something that like the, the church at large decrees on these special people who have who have exhibited exemplary lives. No, it is by the word of God, the declaration of God, that if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are a holy one. You are set apart. It's God's declaration about you, not your declaration about yourself. By including people with great faults and character flaws in this hall of faith, the pastor is showing the Hebrews that God has always, 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 as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He has always chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God never commends sin. What he does in people who live by faith in Jesus Christ is do the impossible while he's changing you from the inside out. The fact that God does and, and delights, in fact, to use broken and jacked up and messed up people who live by faith in Jesus Christ to do extraordinary things, that should get us fired up. That's exciting. And if the first point gets us fired up, the second point makes us frightened. The same God who blesses his people with impossible success also strengthens his people to endure impossible suffering. Mm. Pastor makes a transition in verse 35 from success to suffering. He's no longer naming names, but he probably has people in mind like the prophet Jeremiah, who tradition says was 
stoned to death, or the prophet Zechariah who was stoned to death. We read about in chapter in Second Chronicles 24. He's thinking about Isaiah who was sawn in two. But there are many more of whom he's thinking because he speaks in plural terms in those verses. He says, "Women received back their dead by resurrection." Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute and afflicted and mistreated. And then he says, parenthetically, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Some who lived by faith, he's saying, experienced success, while others who lived by faith experienced suffering. If all, can I be honest? <laughs> all I really want to experience is victory. That's right. All I really want to experience is success. But the fact of the matter is that God gives some people the strength to suffer rather than to conquer. Some, he said in verse 34, escaped the edge of the sword, became mighty in war, and put armies to flight. Others, he says in verse 37, were killed with the sword. This life of faith in Jesus Christ involves both impossible success and often impossible suffering. And we don't, we don't regularly get the choice of which one comes our way. Listen, here's the deal. Right, we saw the character issues of the people he calls out in verses 31 and 32. So it's not the case that if you do everything right as a Christian, you can guarantee success and can avoid suffering. And the opposite is also true. It's not that if you are suffering as a Christian, it's because you're doing everything wrong. Because your faith is somehow failing you. The more important question is, in whatever state you find yourself, am I living by faith? Are we living by faith day in and day out? Because God may send success or suffering my way. And either case, in either case, it is for His glory. And as hard as it may be to fathom and for me to accept, in either case, it's also for my good. Part of his purpose is to grow our sense of trust in him. If, if, if I endure impossible suffering and come out of it with my faith intact, it's only because God has strengthened me. It's only because God has provided the strength. You know, we can...
I'm afraid of suffering. I'm afraid of lack. I'm afraid of being without. I'm afraid of things turning in a wrong way and me being desperate and me having hardship and pain. Forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. You ask, how did he endure such suffering at 
and the account of the woman who chooses to be beaten rather than be saved, you say, why would anybody do that? There's even this funny moment in the documentary when another batch of riders get to Mississippi and the governor of Mississippi had decided that there'd be no violence, but he decided he was going to teach them a lesson and throw the riders into the state penitentiary. And as they were being put in the, in the paddy wagon, one of the riders, Reverend C.T. Vivian, hadn't been arrested. And he said, Reverend Vivian said, and as they were about to close the door of the paddy wagon, uh, he went up to the police captain and, and tapped him on the shoulder uh, and, and said, I'm with them. He said the police chief had to turn away, turn his head away for a few seconds because he was smiling and didn't want to start laughing. He'd never seen anybody volunteer to be arrested. He had to compose himself and then put his stern face back on. And he said, well, what's wrong with these people? Are they crazy? He has of many yes to endure impossible suffering by faith is crazy, but these were people who refused to accept release and were willing even to suffer death because they understood that in Christ they had a better resurrection that physical death could never take away. With this kind of faith in the background, the pastor is actually going to say to the Hebrews in chapter 12 and verse 4, listen, he will say to them, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Keep resisting. You ain't even shed no blood yet. You come from a long line of those who have shed blood for the faith. One commentator says, by subjecting the faithful to abuse, sloggings, imprisonment, and death, the world, that is, humanity and rebellion against God, judged them to be unworthy. But for Hebrews, the reverse is true. The world was unworthy of them. The life of faith in Jesus Christ involves rejecting, quote-unquote, worldliness. It involves rejecting sin and ungodliness, both in individuals and institutions. And when you reject the world, the world often wants to eject you. Listen, he's moved on from impossible suffering to to pointing out the fact that things are impossibly better. Why? Because through Jesus Christ, God makes people perfect. Look at how he ends the chapter in verses 39 and 40. He says, and all these, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. When he says all these, he's referring, this is the end of the chapter, so he's not just referring to the people he was talking about in verses 30 to 40, he's talking about everybody in the whole chapter, all the people of old that he began to talk about in verses 1 and 2, Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Moses, on and on, none of them received what was promised. Well, what's the promise that they didn't receive? Didn't they conquer kingdoms? Didn't some of them enforce justice? Didn't some of them escape the, the edge of the sword? What was the promise that they didn't receive? They didn't receive the promised eternal inheritance. Jesus hadn't come 
Philippians, whose designer and builder is God. They were still looking, he said in verse 16, for the better country, the, the heavenly one. Why did God allow them to die without receiving the promise? Because the pastor said God had provided something better for us. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. God, in his grace, reserved the perfection that he planned for his people in Jesus Christ until we could share it with them. You see, God didn't have one plan for the believers of old. He didn't have one plan for the believers in the Old Testament and another plan for us here today. It's the same plan. They looked forward to the coming of Jesus Christ, but it's better for us because we can look back and know that Jesus did come. He did live and he did die and he did rise from the dead. There is no mystery. We don't have to wonder about whether or not God is actually able and willing and going to save. They had faith even though they only had a tiny spark of light about God's Messiah and His salvation plan. For us it's better because all of the excuses are taken away. Jesus today shines brightly as the Savior of the world. In other words, any excuse we can come up with not to faith, put our faith in Jesus Christ has been taken away. We were already told in this letter, chapter 10 and verse 14, the pastor said, by, by the single offering of himself on the cross, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It doesn't get any better than that. Listen to that again. He said, by a single offering of himself on the cross, he says, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you get the point? He's made you perfect. And you're still being made perfect. You're still being sanctified. You're still on this journey of, of, of being able by being strengthened by God to endure through success and suffering and grow in your faith to, to be able to, 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 to overcome sin and the world. But the declaration about you has already been made. Jesus has made you perfect. The life of faith in Jesus Christ is impossibly better because you can't get better than perfect. <laughs> what does that mean? Listen, we've seen in the examples of this chapter, it doesn't mean that I'm going to get everything right. I'm not going to, if you will, get straight A's. I'm going to offend folks from time to time. My faith is going to fail from time to time to be made. <laughs> To be made perfect means to share in Christ's perfection. To be made perfect means to, be, to share in the perfection of Jesus Christ. He was and is perfect. To belong to him means to have a share in his perfection. So in Jesus Christ, it is impossible to be in a better spiritual condition. 
That's why the pastor can say that for a Christian, your heart is sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, which he said in chapter 2, the tenth and ten rather. That's why we're told in this letter over and over again in the letter to draw near to God. That's why he can say in Jesus Christ in chapter 7 that we have a better hope that in Christ in chapter 7, verse 22, we have a better covenant that in Christ we have in chapter 8, verse 6, better promises. He's, Jesus in chapter 9, verse 23, is a better sacrifice. In him, chapter 10, verse 34, we have a better possession, a better city, better, 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 better. Over and over and over and over and over again, he's been telling them, in Christ is better, in Christ is better, in Christ you're better. grasp the fact that in Jesus, God's plan is better. God makes us perfectly able to meet with impossible success and not become arrogant or anxious that it's all going to fall apart and makes us perfectly able to endure impossible suffering and not be crushed. Because in Jesus Christ, it's better. If you can meet with triumph and disaster and understand that God is still the same. Amen. You're enduring by faith. Thank you, Lord, for the blessing of faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that all things are better with Him than through Him. That we have been made perfect through faith in Him. I pray that this would be a balm to the soul of every heart in here. That we would know that we are impossibly better because of Jesus Christ. Amen.